you're listening to How to Stan. For more information about the show, as well as my other podcast, 17 Karat K-Pop, and how you can support both of them, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how hyphen to hyphen stan dot html. Enjoy the show! Hello everybody and welcome back to How to Stan. Today's special guest is Rolling Stone culture reporter E.J. Dixon. She's also a host of Don't Let This Flop, a new podcast about the latest trends on TikTok. She writes about the widest variety of culture stories you can imagine, from furries to right-wing conspiracy theories to all sorts of lighter topics. So lots to talk about. So thank you for being here, EJ. Thanks for having me. really appreciate it. So first off, would you mind just sharing a bit about how you got to writing about what you write about? Because I'm just curious how it all came about, how you became the, the reporter for so many different, so many different topics. It's not a very interesting story, unfortunately. I went to grad school for journalism basically because I couldn't figure out, you know, I knew I enjoyed writing and was a good writer and I didn't know how to make money off of that. So I was like, oh, journal, there's money in journalism, which was quite possibly like the dumbest thought that a person could possibly have. <laughs> so I went to grad school and right out of grad school, I got hired at a website called The Daily Dot, um, which covers internet culture. So, oh, yeah, I love that. Yeah, it's a great website. They do some really amazing work, really groundbreaking work, especially at the time that I joined the staff. And I had freelanced a little bit and written some pieces about the adult industry. And so when I, I was trying to get hired and during my interview, my managing editor was like, so this porn stuff, you know, yeah. is, is this something that you want to make a you know career out of? And wanting to get hired, I was like, yeah, 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 sure. So basically that was my beat for a while was the intersection between sex and tech. And then I had a couple other jobs where I sort of did variations on that. I edited for a while. And when I got hired at Rolling Stone as a culture reporter, you know, I knew that I didn't exclusively want to write about even just the tech industry because I thought that would be kind of limiting. But I do think it's helpful, you know, in terms of covering internet culture to have that framework to work with. Your podcast, Don't Let This Flop, how did that come about? And then also just kind of, when did you get into TikTok and decide to start writing about that more? I saw an opening. That's really the simplest answer. I saw that there weren't a lot of people covering TikToks. Taylor Lorenz, who is sort of like a hero of mine, she's the New York Times internet culture reporter. And she was doing some really great work on it. And Rebecca Jennings, who I also love at Vox, Kat Denbarge at Insider. I've been around long enough to see, you know, similar platforms, you know, like Snapchat take off and sort of be dismissed initially. So it made sense to me to sort of try to aggressively cover TikTok and see what was going on on there. And in terms of the podcast, that really resulted from me just spending a lot of time on TikTok, honestly. (laughs) That's the other part of the answer, like why cover TikTok? I just really, really like TikTok. Like TikTok has a lot of problems, some of which I've reported on that I'm sure we'll talk about. But, Mm. you know, I think it's really incredible piece of technology. You know, I've seen a lot of really great things come out of it as well as really negative things. And like, I, you know, I really enjoy it. My colleague, Brittany Spanos, who I co-host the podcast with, who's an amazing music journalist, she spends a lot of time on TikTok too. So I was like, hey, you know, we might as well put this to good use. What is it, do you think, about TikTok? How you got sucked in really? And, and maybe, I don't know what you know about, you know, their algorithms and stuff, but what is it that makes that the app so just addicting? Well, they're not super transparent about their algorithm, but it, it's, it's, I mean, what we do know is that it's extremely sophisticated. You know, if you spend a lot of time on TikTok, then you know about the For You page, which is basically 
you just keep scrolling. There's an infinite scroll feature and the app will just keep recommending content for you based on what you'd already previously engaged with. It's based on metrics like watch time, favorites, shares. So it can figure out pretty quickly who you are and what you're interested in based on what you engage with. Almost immediately after I downloaded it, TikTok figured out that I am a queer New York-based former theater kid mother. And wow, that's a lot. You know, I don't know that it, but based on the content that I received, mm -hmm. that's I'm I'm guessing that it knows all of that about me, like in my early 30s. So and and this was like immediately after I downloaded the app, and that's the content that I've been getting ever since because the, that I'm a cat lover, that I'm a dog lover, like, cause they they figured out that's like what I'm interested in. And it's yeah. pretty scary how powerful it is, honestly. People who use TikTok a lot sort of report feeling extremely targeted and extremely catered to. And I think that just is a testament to the power of the algorithm. Yeah, I was wondering, I was, I've been thinking a lot lately about how I think TikTok is, has longevity or not. I'm thinking about things like Vine and things that I was really into when they came out and I thought they'd be all the rage, but you know, one or two years later, they're already not popular anymore. And then you have apps like YouTube that are now like mainstays in people's life. And it sounds like, do you think TikTok is more like YouTube where it's kind of not going away a year or two down the road? It seems like it has real like lasting power and maybe it's because of that algorithm. Oh yeah, I think so, absolutely. I, I, I don't think TikTok's going anywhere. Kind of hard to find new Vine content. It would send me Vines all the time. And like, it was a big thing for a while for media companies to like post Vines, but nobody really knew how to make a good Vine except for like a handful of creators. And most of them just left the platform when it went bust anyway and went onto YouTube. But TikTok, I think it's more user-friendly. I think it's a lot easier. You literally don't have to do anything to find new content. Like the app does all the work for you. I think it's here to stay. I think it's going to be the next YouTube for sure. And you can see that by the fact that all the other platforms are rolling out analogs to TikTok. That's basically just like Instagram's reels, which is basically just repurposed TikTok content. Yeah, that's true. Plus with Vine, I think one of the challenges was you have to have six second comedic timing, way different than, you know, a minute long, whatever you're doing. For sure. It was a very limiting format. Yeah. I'm going to pretend I have never been on TikTok for a second and you've got to convince me, you know, you've got to check it out and what's going to, who should I follow on TikTok? What are the like, accounts that deserve a shout out? What, what gets people hooked? Certain accounts or creators are really your favorite on the app. There's this woman named Corey Sendler who is a ceramicist on TikTok. And I don't think she has like an unbelievably large following. I think she's got maybe like couple of hundred thousand followers if that but I really love her she's like my ASMR she's got like a really soothing voice and she's just like a very chill presence she's like in her 60s and she lives in the middle of a rainforest in in Canada and I could watch her make like Christmas mug for hours and I was thinking of buying her stuff but I actually just found out that like one of her mugs is $70 so like I'm not doing that anytime soon yeah. but yeah I really love her she's great Switching gears a little bit to talk more about YouTube, because I'm curious, a lot of my questions are about, you know, your big uh, David Dobrik profile. Feels like that sums up a lot of influencer culture and how it's e extreme. It's, you know, you let out your inner child, you know, the way influencers live and everything just felt like kind of a microcosm of that. So I was just curious if you could talk about, for those who haven't read it, some of the things that really stood out to you when you went to profile him and just certain things he did or said that really just left you and thought about, wow, that says a lot about 
you know, YouTubers or any other influencer. I'm going to need to supply some context here. When I went out to profile David Dobrik, he had just come off of this really bombshell insider story that Ket Tenbarge wrote about how one of his longtime associates, a guy who had been in his blog squad, Dom Zaglitis, had been accused of raping a woman in one of David's videos and it had been captured on camera. And David was sort of, you know, coming off of the scandal associated with that, being accused of en enabling and, you know, exploiting people for content. And then the day that I arrived, another story actually broke where there was this footage that surfaced of another member of David's vlog squad, Jeff Wittick, getting beamed. He did some stunt and he got really, really hurt in the process. He could have died. And Jeff was sort of repurposing that into his own spin-off series because Jeff is like an influencer in his own right. And there was a lot of anger directed at David and there were a lot of questions going on about what kind of responsibility he had toward his audience and floating them in the name of content. And I have to say, I expected him to be extremely, I was shocked he wanted to talk, first of all. I, yeah. I, I, was, I was really shocked about that because most people in that situation don't want to do that. So that was the first thing that really stuck out to me, the fact that he wanted to talk. And the second thing was the fact that I really liked him. It's hard not to like people that you spend a lot of time with when you're interviewing them. But I think, I mean, I think David is a very likable guy. And I think he is, I, he was trying to grapple with a lot of the issues that the scandal was presenting. And the third thing that really stood out to me, which is what I led the piece with, because I couldn't really, I couldn't really believe what was happening. Maybe like an hour and a half into me being there, we're going to go over to see his pizza restaurant. And there is an old woman crossing the street and he just stops the car while he's driving. And he's like, hold on guys, I got this. And I'm like, he's got what? Like, what's going on? And he gets out of the car and he starts helping this old woman across the street. And I'm sitting there thinking, why is he doing this? Like, I just could not make sense of it. And so I asked him, what was that? And he was like, oh, yeah, we paid this woman like 150 bucks to, you know, cross the street in front of you. And I was like, why did you do that? Did you, was this because of, you know, the Jeff Whittick story that broke this morning? And he looked at me and he was basically like, no, I just thought it would be funny. And to me, it really blew me away because it was just clear that it was another example of how this guy sees everything through the lens of content. Like he saw an opportunity to like pull a stunt on me and it kind of colored the rest of my interactions with him. Like I just wasn't sure whether or not to believe anything that he said as a result. It was a very interesting moment, but it was a very insightful moment in that regard. And and to be honest, like, I wasn't even really mad about, like, I, I thought it was funny. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, it was a funny idea, but I just couldn't really, it crystallized to me exactly how this guy saw the world. Yeah, it does feel kind of surreal, those moments where it's just different when you're not an influencer. And then, you know, an influencer casually drops 150 bucks for a prank. It's kind of like surreal because it's what's going on later on didn't you guys like pass someone else too and you didn't stop and help he didn't stop and help there we saw this one um you know young girl panhandling on the road and he didn't he didn't stop the car and i asked him about it later i was like did you see that young girl and he was like yeah i didn't want to stop because i didn't want you to think that i was doing it you know to make myself look good basically 
And there were people who read about that and, and were like, oh, he didn't stop, you know, for the girl who like genuinely needed help. Oh, he's a person. And I didn't, that wasn't my takeaway from that. I understood why he didn't stop. My takeaway was more just how exhausting it must be to see mm -hmm. the world entirely through that framework of how people look at you. How are they going to interpret your actions? It made me really, you know, sympathize with him. In the same interview, he like does something overtly for the stunt. And then the other time doesn't do it because he's worried it'll look like a stunt. It is an interesting window into how they make this content and see the world as content. One thing that stood out to me in what uh, David's apology video said, and I think you wrote a bit about this too, he keeps bringing up this concept of power dynamic. He knows he created a bad power dynamic or an unequal one or didn't recognize it or things like that. Just been thinking lately how self-aware these influencers are of the power they have over what people do or don't do. I guess it's not so much a question. I'm just kind of thinking out loud, uh, wondering what your thoughts are on that and how this desire to, and the way they see the world is all about content might be shaping how they even are self-aware about those dynamics or not. My impression was that he was genuinely thinking about that. I didn't think that he was being disingenuous. I think he genuinely did not know until it was too late the type of environment that he was building. I mean, I think it says something about sort of the ecosystem that we live in. You know, because it's not just David Dobrik who has a big following and has all of these friends that appear in his content or, you know, hits it big and his friends are all, you know, and everybody is willing to say or do anything to, like, be in his videos. And it's not just David Dobrik who views the entire world through the lens of content. This is increasingly the way that everybody feels now that everybody is looking at themselves as a personal brand, you know, regardless of whether they have 15 million Instagram followers or not. You know, every relationship is transactional. Every moment is fodder for content. I don't think that this story was really specific to David Dobrik. I think it sort of speaks increasingly to, quote unquote, the way that we live now. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Sort of related when it comes to, I guess, this world where people are trying to uh, get their moment of fame or whatever. Not a great segue, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was curious about in general i want to talk about you know tiktok and it's good sides of course but for a little bit i want to focus more on the kind of content that they maybe aren't dealing with right i'm just curious what you know about their moderation policies what kind of content they take down versus what are some examples of videos that you've seen up that should have gone down way earlier how do you think about their moderation content policies it's interesting because TikTok, in theory, has an extremely stringent moderation policy and is one of the clearest and most rigorous out of, you know, a lot of social media platforms. Like they came down hard on COVID-19 misinformation and, and they did so, I think, relatively early compared to other platforms. And their guidelines are very specific. But in reality, in practice, what I see is almost a complete absence of content moderation. <laughs> If TikTok actually moderated its content as aggressively as it said it was, I basically wouldn't have a job. Every, you know, natural disaster or every tragedy that happens, there's just a whirlwind of conspiracy theories and misinformation that circulates on the app. And there doesn't even need to be like an inciting event to prompt that. Mm -hmm. Like one, one thing that I focus on a lot in my reporting is sex trafficking misinformation. And every once in a while, there'll be a video that goes around that gets like 15 million views or something. 
where somebody's talking about the latest tactic that sex traffickers use to, you know, catch their victims. And there's no evidence whatsoever behind any of this. Like the last one that I reported on was like some woman seeing a car seat on the side of the road and being like, don't take that car seat because the sex trafficker will take you. It got like 35 million views. And TikTok wasn't doing anything about it because it got a lot of engagement. <laughs> and, yeah. um, and that's just the purest example of misinformation that you could possibly think of. And it runs rampant on the app because the algorithm rewards high engagement and it rewards sensationalistic content. And people can get up and make whatever claims they want to. My short answer is, in theory, TikTok has a very strong moderation policy. In practice, I don't really see it being implemented. So it sounds like it's not really an issue of like the rules or lack thereof. It's just like the enforcement is not there. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to say because they're not exactly transparent like any other big social media platform. This is not specific to TikTok. Like a lot of social media platforms have this issue, especially when they start really growing very big. And to an extent, I have sympathy because it's it's like whack-a-mole. One video is taken down and there are going to be 10 more in its place. Like there's only so much that TikTok can do. I could see TikTok taking that I am just not seeing them taking. I don't know if you want me to keep talking about this. We can move on if you want. <laughs> but, no, I'd like to uh, know a little bit more. What do you think they could do differently? Well, a good example of this is um, Astroworld. 10 people died at the Travis Scott Music Festival. Just a horrible, horrible tragedy. And I saw the conspiracy theories, like these really ludicrous satanic conspiracy theories popping up on the app almost immediately. And even a couple days later, as I'm looking through TikTok, if you type in Astroworld in the search bar, what automatically came up was like Astroworld satanic or Travis Scott satanic or Astroworld Illuminati. Anybody searching for Astroworld content on the app would have been led to that. And this was days after the Astroworld tragedy itself. Like they had time to go through their search terms and go through their hashtags and see what kind of content people were posting. And they just didn't. So I think they could afford to be a lot more proactive. I think they need to realize that they have a responsibility to their young user base to do so. And I think they really need to come to terms with the fact that they've been a tremendous vector for misinformation. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, proactive is like the key word there. Like, I wonder if they just need to expect this with every tragedy. I'm just like, someone's going to say this is tied to this other irrelevant thing, but they'll make it relevant. And maybe TikTok just needs to know whenever something tragic happens to... I really don't think they particularly care. It's the same with Twitter. I mean, the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict came in today, and one of the first things I see on Twitter is that the hashtag pray for Kyle or something like that trending. Like, good grief. You know, you, you would think, you would think that they would keep a handle on their trending topics. They have a whole team, you know, assigned mm -hmm. to that, but it just doesn't seem like they consider it that much of a priority. What do they seem to consider a priority? Like, whose mm. content is often the most censored? Sex workers girls wearing low-cut t-shirts that's the honest answer. i mean tiktok is incredibly puritanical you can't say sex so people start spelling it in the captions s-e-g-g-s you can't say like porn you can't say there was a story that came out that the disney account was censoring terms like gay and lesbian and continuously flags the smallest violations of its sexual content guidelines and its nudity guidelines so that seems to be a lot of where their priorities are I've been thinking about Addison Rae and how she, I don't mm. even remember what happened, but she got her TikTok taken down 
I don't think everyone's getting their account back like that, but she has, I don't know the right word for it, wholesome, I guess, content? Yeah. That's probably one of the reasons they were okay with. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, we don't know why she was taken down. I mean, the speculation was that she put up some booty shaking video that people that like trolls started flagging and it was a pretty like tame video, but. So we, we don't actually know why the video was taken down, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty telling that she got her account back so quickly that probably wouldn't happen to somebody without, I don't know how many followers she has, like a hundred million. I'm guessing by now you practically have TikTok's team on speed dial, like, cause you got to ask for requests for comment all the time. How do they respond when you say like, Hey, I'm going to write about this piece of misinformation or whatever that's on your app. Like, what do they say? Do you work for TikTok? I don't. <laughs> you seem to have insight into the process of into, no. into my reporting process. How often do they respond to you? Most of the time they respond. Yeah. Most of the time they're pretty responsive. Yeah. Do they kind of just like generically send you something or like? Honestly, most of the time the response is, thanks for flagging this. We found it violated our guidelines and we're taking it down. And that's... do they? Yes, they do. Well, that's, that's something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But it takes me reaching out to them for that to happen. Right. You, you know, like it takes a journalist emailing being like, hey, I'm doing a story about this thing that you guys aren't doing. Can you guys do it? I cannot even tell you how many emails I've gotten from people who are like, please help me get my account back. Like they're not answering my emails. I didn't do anything wrong. And I have to tell them like, that's not, that's not my job. There's no like special skill that I have or connection to like get your account back. But I understand why TikTok responds faster to me than to those other people. There's one specific incident on TikTok that you wrote about that just really fascinates me. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about it for people who don't know what happened. There was this time where this girl, she, she took some sort of, I don't know, like a personality test or something and jokingly said, this is also a Scientology test and she connected it to Scientology. This girl made a TikTok, it was a viral TikTok, where she takes the Scientology personality test. There's a personality test that the Church in Scientology has new members fill out, and it's not like a scientifically valid test, but they market it as such. This girl took the test just for fun, and it went viral. It was kind of unclear in the comments, like whether or not it was a joke, or if she was just doing this to promote the Church of Scientology. And when I actually first saw it, I was convinced that she was a Scientologist who was doing this under the radar to help spread the work. Because they, I mean, they're known for doing stuff like that. But then I reached out to her and we talked and she, and she wasn't. But the weird byproduct of this was that it actually, you know, even though she didn't intend, it was driving people to the Church of Scientology. Like I called the Church of Scientology in Ottawa where she lived and, and they were like, yeah, we've gotten like so many more applications because of this girl's TikTok. This is great for us. That's really interesting to me because it, it's very, I don't know, it's very internet language. It's just like peak internet language to do something you don't even see the irony. You know what I mean? Yeah, it is sort of an enigma wrapped in a puzzle, wrapped in a sandwich or whatever. Yeah, it's like doing a bit so mm -hmm. well, it's almost like they convinced themselves it's not a bit anymore. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think she was genuinely surprised that it went viral for the reason that it went viral. <laughs> But it is funny that we're all so trained to like, that we're so steeped in irony all the time that it's like really impossible to tell. Yeah. Switching gears a little bit, I was curious, what's been going on lately that you know of in the world of true crime TikTok? And for those who don't know about true crime TikTok, 
what has that been like this year? True crime TikTok is kind of wild, pretty unfettered. It has the same problem, like I was saying earlier, where anybody can just go up and like say whatever they want about anything and it'll get 20 million views on TikTok. And you really saw that in the true crime community with the Gabby Petito case earlier this year, which if you're not familiar with the story, this was an aspiring van life influencer who took a road trip with her boyfriend ended up dead she was missing for a while they found they found her body and then he was missing for a while and they found his body fairly recently on the surface a fairly straightforward incredibly tragic story about domestic violence because this guy apparently had a history of being super controlling borderline abusive but especially while she was missing and while he was missing true crime tiktok kind of went wild there were like a ton of conspiracy theories about this that just went massively viral on the platform. There was one video I saw that blew me away with how stupid it was and how popular it was. While Brian Laundry, this girl's boyfriend, was missing, somebody was like, I live next to Laundry's mom. And they were taking a video of this woman bending over and watering her plants. And the implication of the video was that Brian Laundry was hidden underground and the mom was like, feeding him and there was like no evidence whatsoever to support like there was like there was nothing to say like oh this girl actually does live next door to brian laundry's mom there was no evidence to say like brian laundry is underground there was no evidence Whoa. whatsoever to support this but it was going wildly viral and it's just i mean yeah true crime tiktok's ridiculous when the truth comes out do they just kind of move on then or do they oh, like, yeah. dig in their heels? Yeah, I haven't seen a Gabby Petito TikTok in a while. They just, they pretend like nothing ever happened and move on to the next case. A total detour, but could you talk a bit about the right-wing children's books? Because I just find that so fascinating what they're doing and what is that? <laughs> like, what's going on? It's a company called Brave Books and I literally just saw... I don't even remember where I saw it. Some article announcing that Dan Crenshaw, who's this veteran who lost his eye in Afghanistan and now has a political career and a sort of this, uh, you know, right-wing pundit, had partnered with this children's book company to make a series of children's books aimed at indoctrinating right-wing kids, basically. And like one of the books was about cancel culture and one of the books is about the evils of socialism. And another one of the books is like transphobic. And I was like, damn, I have to get my hands on these books. And then my second thought, because I'm a sick person, was obviously like, I have to read this to my kid <laughs> and, and see what happens. I went completely over his head, like he didn't understand any of it, but. That's what I was wondering, like, what is the age range for these? I think it's like four to 12, but my kid is four and he didn't, he didn't fuck, he didn't get any of it. <laughs> yeah, I just, I can't imagine four-year-old me reading a book about socialism and being, like, enthralled for better or worse. Like, I just can't picture that. Yeah, I mean, they it's just so, they try to make it kid-friendly by, the anti-socialism one is, I think, called, like, the land of free ice cream. And the idea is, oh, you think free ice cream sounds good, but actually it's bad. And that's the whole book. And they try to make it kid-friendly by basically ripping off Disney <laughs> and like drawing rip-offs of Disney characters. And that was the thing that resonated with most with my with my son, who was like, oh, it's the guy from Zootopia. And I was like, no, it's just like a <laughs> barely copyright infringement. Yeah, exactly. That was what stuck with him the most. Not, not so much the anti-socialism message. 
Honestly, the thing that I thought was smart marketing is the sticker collection or whatever that comes with the book. Oh, yeah, he loved that, too. He did like that, too. Yeah. Yeah, the yeah that's, the, mm-hmm. that's the thing I would be preoccupied with. Yeah, he was he was super into that. For those who don't know what happened, could you talk about this recent incident of there was this flight passenger. It looked like a video just going viral of someone who was... Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, not going to sit next to someone who was not vaccinated or something. Like, could you explain what happened? Yeah, there, it was this video that was going viral on TikTok, but it was also going around on Twitter, of this woman basically saying on a flight, saying like she wasn't going to sit next to her seatmate because he wasn't vaccinated. And then the pilot comes out and kicks her off the aircraft because we don't discriminate against non-vaccinated people on my flight. And then everybody cheers. And I mean, it was very, very, very obvious it was fake. Like not even just the acting and the set and like the camera angle that would have gone viral on Tumblr like in 2014, right? You know, the the meme of Mm -hmm. like somebody telling a story on Tumblr and at the end, everybody claps. Like that's exactly what happens in the video. And it's also like a classic anti-vax talking point that people on the left are discriminating against them. So it was very obvious that it was fake. So then my goal was to figure out proof for that it was fake, basically. And so it took a couple hours for me to do that. And I traced it to this content creator who basically is like just a viral, you know, content factory, like one man viral content factory who makes inspirational or heartwarming videos, some of which have a slightly political slant and, but are clearly just, you know, targeted to get as much engagement as possible. And, and this was one of them. They filmed it in England. They like casted it. They had professional actors doing it. There were people, you know, the director was like taking selfies on Instagram, like on set. And it just really speaks to just like the viral content industry that they're trying to win people's hearts and minds with these clearly staged videos. Yeah. So they, so they like had a whole production crew for like a one minute video. Yeah, man. Yeah. (laughs) It has an IMDb page. Oh my God. What's it called? COVID flight a very creative title COVID flight yeah related to that this is not something you've I'm just gonna throw it out there because maybe it's for a don't let this flop segment I've noticed recently on TikTok it seems like there's this whole world of fiction talk or like fiction stories where like it is actors it's like a tv show basically but like these are hired actors and they're all like related to this one company that keeps hiring them and then the company is like not telling anyone who they are or why they're hiring they're just normal like tiktoks about like talking about your life are you talking about forefront i think it's called forefront i think i think so yeah yeah they just came out to basically like take credit for the fact that they had caused all of these videos to go viral and to explain like what they were doing Yeah, it's an interesting project. One thing that I was thinking about a lot with that video we were just talking about with COVID flight, actually, because they're kind of doing a very similar thing. It's just ostensibly apolitical. I don't really see, I mean, I think it's an interesting idea. I don't really see if, like, what the audience is, you know? Because for me, if I find out that something is fictional, like, I'm just going to be, so much of the appeal of the story times on TikTok is that these are people's, like, actual lives or people debating in the comments, like, whether or not this is real. And if you... (laughs) start out from the outset being like this is not real this is just a story that like you know some marketing agency employee in philly who makes like forty five thousand dollar a year made up then that just kind of takes you out of it like it takes all the fun out of it so i i don't know i don't really know what the target audience is but it's it's an interesting idea yeah there's one other thing i've noticed on tiktok that i'm wondering if you've heard of it 
when I graduated last year, my big capstone project was about virtual influencers and like, oh, cool. Yeah, the world of like CGI only, like Michaela and those types of people. Mm -hmm. So I've still kind of kept tabs on them just because I'm curious about what they're up to in their fictional universe and whatever. There's one that's called FN Mecca, who's like apparently really big on TikTok. Why is he big? I mean, it's weird. He's like a fictional rapper guy, so he's like a CGI character. His company, the company that made him, is really bragging about how well he's doing on TikTok. So I'm just curious if like they're just doing PR or if like he legit is a big deal. Again, I don't understand the, I really just do not understand the appeal. If you're operating from the assumption that something is fake, what the appeal is, because so much of the fun of, I guess this isn't like me being a millennial talking, maybe Zoomers feel differently. I don't know. I don't know if you feel differently, but so much of the fun of being on the internet in like 2015 was like something would go viral and you'd be like, is that staged? Is that real? Is that fake? That's so much of the appeal of it for me. You know, operating from the assumption that something is not real, it's not fun for anybody. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing about Michaela that really got her popular was because her company's like, yeah, she is a fake person. But like in the early days, you had to guess if she was like a real kind of just digitized slightly person. Now she's very much clearly, you know, in the beginning, like her comment section was full of people like just debating if she was even a real person. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because her appeal hasn't gone away. I mean, she has a lot of followers still. So weird. I really don't get it. As I kind of wrap things up, who are some other um, culture writers that you want to shout out? I think I shouted them. I shouted a few out earlier. I love Taylor. I love Rebecca. I love Kat Tenbarge, um, Palmer Hosh from Insider is also re- Insider is doing you know great work on the digital space. The Daily Dot has some great people. I think her name is Michelle Santiago Cortez, who used to work for Refinery, who's also really great. Where can uh, my listeners follow you in your writing? Well, please subscribe to Don't Let This Flop, like and subscribe. Follow me on Twitter at EJ Dixon. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really do appreciate it and keep up the great work because I really do enjoy reading it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Thank you for having me.